On the ride of a lifetime, I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and uh, I'll open with a, a brief prayer. Lord, we love you and need you, and we seek your wisdom, your spirit, and your light as we uh, move forward tonight for this short program, and, and we pray that you will be honored and people seeking truth will find you. In Jesus' name, amen. Had a great surprise on Sunday, a uh, 
a fan of uh, Heart of the Matter, a good brother in the Lord. I was able to have lunch with him earlier. This is Adam Clark. He's a professional musician. Uh, he makes his living uh, playing music in Los Angeles. He says it, it's not a ma, not, he's not rich, but he makes his living. He studied music in school. Uh, but the beautiful thing is, is uh, he's come out of Mormonism and he is a firm believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And uh, I, we talked at, uh, you, you guys know that I'm interested in the arts. Adam came, he drove all the way from LA uh, in large part to be here and uh, not to even be on the show. He just wanted to come and see. And so when you have devotion like that, man, but in any case, uh, Adam is an artist. He's a Christian. He deals with a lot of people in the music industry in Los Angeles. And we talked about how that's got to be uh, an interesting experience every night that you're playing. Can you tell us about, about that? The fun part about being an artist in any kind of art form is that artists, the artist's mind is, you know, you have people from all walks of life and artists are real open-minded and they try all kinds of things in life. And uh, so you meet some real interesting uh, people that, huh. that are, they're dedicated, but then they're real interesting and you meet all races and creeds and, and, and all different countries. And it's just a blessing to know and interact with so many people from around the world. And even if you just live in one city, still, you know, there's people from all over the world you get to work with and it's a, it's a real pleasure. And it's, it's a very fun uh, thing to do. It's work, but it's fun. We're, uh, you're going to be interested. I wrote this uh, script a week ago. No connection to new, nothing of what he was going to say, but it dovetails into what he just said uh, tonight uh, here on the air. I love how God does that with us. But listen, when you're out, you're playing music, what's the reception uh, if and when people find out you're Christian? How do you let that be known? And what is your approach for the other Christian artists out there and people who are artistic in that world? How do, you, how do people in your industry know or do you even let them know? When I first became a Christian, a baby Christian, even though I still kind of am, uh, I was more kind of hesitant to share that. And then now that I've been probably for about seven or eight years, um, I'm, I'm more open in probably the last three or four years, more open just to tell people. And I've, I've always found that if you just, if they ask, then tell them. And if, if you want to share it with them, that's cool too. And I've always found that if you just, if you just share it with them and, and just don't make it a big deal, they always kind of, whether they're a Christian or not, they always kind of respect it. And as long as you don't force anything on them, you just share. And if, if they're not interested, then conversation's over. And if they are, they ask questions and you can talk more about it and that's great. Do you think once it, uh, the, it's known that you are a Christian, whether it's ever talked about again, do you think some are watching you? I think there is. I yeah. think there definitely is. Because everybody has in their own mind what that is. Yeah. You know, so it's all relative to everybody's life experiences. And um, I like to think about just the doctrine of it, you know, because... A lot of people, if you bring up Christianity, they'll, they always have somebody that they know. Well, I knew this guy, and he, he's a Christian, and he did this, you know, and then they judge it off that. And I'm like, well, you know, we're, just judge it off the doctrine. And then we're humans, and we're going to mess it up. 
and then, but the doctrine and, you know, Jesus Christ is what's important. We always ask anybody who uh, opens a store, uh, show up with us, have anything to say to the audience? I thought about that because you, you always ask people for a, a final thought or something, and I'd like to steal a chorus line from a band called Third Day, and the song is called Cry Out to Jesus, and the chorus line is, there is hope for the helpless, rest for the weary, and love for the broken heart. There is grace and forgiveness, mercy and healing. He'll meet you wherever you are. Cry out to Jesus. Awesome, man. Love you, brother. <laughs> Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts Perfect. saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. By the way, uh, Adam gave me, uh, this is a drum key, which he says uh, musicians use to tune their drums. And uh, it's in the shape of a, a cross, being an artist. I, uh, uh, he pointed that out to me, and I love this. I might start wearing crosses again, so if you start seeing the, uh, the thing happen, understand how it got started. It was with Adam. I'm going to talk reasonably with you all tonight in the segment, from, which we call From the Word. On Sunday, we had a visitor come to campus, and uh, she used to study with us in our former days. And uh, she left joining with us over theological differences. I don't know which one. And... Uh, at the end of the meet service, I came up to her and I said, you know, how have you been? And she said, well, I'm just sitting here and trying to figure out what you believe. That was the introductory. Uh, I smiled, uh, but I could tell by the look of her face, she was not there to be humored. And uh, so I said, you know, I believe in Jesus. I believe in his shed blood. I believe in God. I believe in his uh, redempt, and she cut me off. And she said, do you believe in heaven and hell? And now, this happens quite a bit. Uh, people who used to belong to the fellowship or appreciate the ministry uh, that have denounced us for one reason or another, they often pop back up. Uh, and they generally, under the auspices of, they say, I'm just checking in, seeing what's happening. They, hey, Sean, there's a, there's a tangible difference between my brother, uh, how are you, to, we're just here, you know, stay, stay over there. And typically on these return visits, they get angry. Uh, they let it be known that they disapprove of something, and then they dramatically exit. It's happened several times here to show how indignant they are over what we're talking about or discussing. And it, this doesn't need to be. You know, I don't know why we have to do this to each other. Um, I understand not attending a church because you don't like the music style or the, the services or, or even what's being taught. But when, when are people going to get to believe and think and openly discuss ideas relative to God and not receive the look that says, you're of the devil? When are we going to be able to just share things without people just, just freaking out and, and coming down your throat? And you know, this path of acceptance works both ways. I have to admit, when I saw her, I, there's a part of me in my heart that wanted to pull the old pastor trick and walk up and say, you're not welcome here. That's in my flesh. I wanted to say that to her because I know kind of what she was going to be doing. 
And, uh, but, you know, you got to choose in Jesus' name. Are you going to receive people? Are you going to accept them? And not by me. I did, my flesh was saying, you know, tell her to leave. But the Spirit says you got to welcome all people. And so pastors can very easily exclude people from congregations in the name of peace and protecting the flock. And as congregates, it's really easy to dismiss pastors uh, based on theological opinions and stuff like that. But witnessing this situation yet again on Sunday, it reminded me to remind you, our viewers, Wendy just sent me this thing that in July we had 5,400 viewers from 53 countries around the world. 5,400 viewers from 53 countries or more around the world. In Utah, you know, it's not as big as it used to be, but it's going out to more people who are starting to say, you know, and, and so I was reminded to remind you that whether you're a pastor or you're a congregate, we all, myself included, ought to try to step back a bit on opinion and, and policing each other and be kind and more loving in the name of our King. It's not natural, it's not easy, but it is in harmony with the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what we got to try to always try to uh, go after. Uh, when I was a faithful Latter-day Saint, by the way, I'm calling the tonight's show Stream of Streaming Consciousness because uh, I, I started to work on part four of uh, in, um, creation and I just didn't have it in me. And, and this stuff started coming out, so I'm calling it Streaming Consciousness. Uh, when I was LDS, even when I was an ardent L, uh, evangelical, as ardent as I possibly could be, I was under the impression that all of us are here in our present state based on our decisions, based on my good decisions or my bad decisions, that if somebody is suffering, it's because of their bad decisions. If somebody is doing well, it's because they have chosen right. And this is a really convenient belief to hold as a wasm, which is different from a wasp. A, wad is a, a wasp is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. A wasm is a white Anglo-Saxon Mormon. So it's really convenient for me to hold that idea. And it was an attitude that led me to be very congratulatory toward people who were successful around and very just as condemnatory at the other end of people who are our, our failures in society. The, so the societal failures, they're that way because of their own damn making, you know. And uh, in my condemnation, I actually believe that God was right with me, you know, like in Animal House. Sorry to admit I saw that movie. Uh, 40 times, but uh, uh, in that movie, Satan and the, de and, the dev and the devil, Satan and an angel pop up and try to convince a guy in that movie to do terrible things, and the, the angel saying, don't do it, don't do it, and Satan saying, do it, do it, and uh, you know, I always thought that in my condemnation of people who were in bad straits, who were drug addicted or having problems, that God was saying, that's right, Sean, look at them, they are making bad choices. The other day I had a string of conversations that caused me to rethink these attitudes, and, and this happens, and so I, I do. I rethink them, and to arrive at better conclusions. The day began when my brother Warren, and I hope he doesn't mind me asking this, I told him I was going to ask him if I could do this, but he called me, and he said, you know, I want to talk to you about your brother's suicide. And um, Warren does Breaking Bread, and you see clips of uh, his show on our website, and he revealed that he had a brother, too, who took his own life. Interestingly, we both were LDS, and we talked about how our brothers' respective suicides played a role 
in our eyes kind of opening up to the facade of religion and our eyes opening up to, hey, there's something wrong in the woodshed here. We're not really sure what and to bring us to the truth. We also admitted that while our brother's deaths, respective deaths caused a lot of pain in, in our lives through the, these actions, uh, and while their actions are sorrowful and sad, they not only led both of us in some way to coming to know the truth, but they have indirectly also led to, in Warren's ministry and, and our ministry, to tens of thousands of people coming to know the truth. And, and so, uh, in other words, by and through their suffering, even through their deaths, uh, others have come to have life. Now you might think, well, that's really taking, it's really not a stretch. There is a correlation between what happened in my life and, and talking to Warren, I think in his, directly between my brother's suicide and me saying, I gotta wake the heck up here and see what's going on around me in terms of religion. So, this was unique for me to consider after talking to Warren. The day wore on and I kept pondering our discussion. Two hours later, I got a call from my middle daughter, Cassidy. Now, Cassidy grew up with Delaney and, and Mallory in Huntington Beach. She, recalled, she received a call from a friend who had just been to a 7-Eleven down there and she saw a man who was sitting there and he didn't have shoes on and he was homeless, obviously, and his face was covered in scabs and cuts and he was barefoot, but he had a stack of shoes that had apparently been given to him for uh, his condition. And, but what makes the story applicable to my thoughts of the day was this was a long time family friend. This was a, a kid that we know really, really well. It wasn't just a passing acquaintance. Cassidy's best friend is, her, is his sister. And she grew up from a child in kindergarten up in their family's sleepovers and everything knowing this young man. But what truly makes this even more applicable is that we have known that for half of his 24 years, he has battled with substances. I mean, battled with substances. Now, he came from, and we are first-hand witnesses. You can say, well, you don't know what happened behind the scenes. I'm gonna tell you, we know the family and what happened behind the scenes was support, was guidance, was uh, attending all sporting activities. He was intellectual. He was fairly smart. He was a very good athlete. He was a handsome kid. He was popular as a result of those things, but he wasn't indulged. There was, there was none of those prototypical things that we assign as to the reason. I am convinced that the path he has thus far walked in his life is his lot in life. Now you might think, no way. I am convinced. I am convinced that he was born with these proclivities and listen, into a home that it was. And I am similarly convinced that the role he is currently playing in society, listen, is as purposeful, kill that fly, as the hundreds of other kids who will become accountants and clerks and firefighters. I am convinced that his role will play just as an important role. Uh, in other words, like my brother and, and Warren's brother who took their own lives, this homeless boy's role may be to teach hundreds of other kids in the community to avoid substances altogether. And through his suffering, maybe God uses that to help others live. 
because in and through his suffering publicly now, others are able to live. Extrapolate this thought out across the world and we just may find ourselves better able to see that God has and does and will use people to accomplish certain things. And some of them, in fact, most of them are called to great suffering. Schizophrenics, who when they read their teens, suddenly become schizophrenic, just suddenly are there and they have that lot for life. You want to see suffering? I've told stories before about being downtown when we lived down there and having uh, uh, schizophrenics and the conditions that they are in. Does God use that? Does he use their presence for good? I think so. People who are diseased, dementia, body, mind, are poor, are uneducated. The people who are trapped in religious systems, the people who are free from religious systems, all of them are used just as much, in my opinion, as our great industrialists, as our great creators, as the gamefully employed, as the devout. However, all have, because of this, we do not have a right to look down our nose at the, what is happening in someone's life. We cannot fall prey to the temptation that somebody is suffering because or somebody's life hasn't turned out the way we think it should because they deserve it. I, 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 I don't believe that anymore. God is not a respecter of persons. None, none in his eyes are any better than any other. There is no Trump and bum on the street here. There is none of that with God, okay? So amidst this, we might ask ourselves, why have I been permitted to escape the suffering? that some others have endured? Or why have others not been able to escape the suffering? I don't think we know the answer. But I do believe that in the face of our blessed existences, there lies an incomprehensible responsibility to bless and serve those less fortunate. So besides the obvious theme of where much is given, much is expected, this is to remind us that as Christians, our attitude may be to see, try to see all people, all people being used by our great God who is love to bring about his good and expected end through the lives of those who are blessed and through the lives of those who seem to be cursed. Just think back to the Lord's uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus covered with sores on the rich man's thing. Just think about that. God was aware of both. All right, another stream of consciousness. For decades, our family has had an affinity with New York City. While I was working in the brokerage field, I trained in the World Trade Center for over a month. I was in that 67th or 68th floor every day for over a month learning the brokerage trade. Due to my affinity to the city, um, my wife and I took our daughters uh, to the city often. This was when I was gamefully employed as a stockbroker on Easter and Christmas and different things. We loved it. All of my daughters have lived in the city at some point in time in their life. My oldest daughter uh, attended school there and studied music. Middle daughter, a uh, filmmaker, writer. She lived in New York uh, twice now. And our youngest has just finished a summer program uh, in architecture there. And last week after the show, 
uh, that night, Mary and I flew to support the graduation from the summer program and uh, spent four days. It's, it's for, I told Derek earlier, it's the first four days I have done nothing but observe people. I did not write a word. I didn't read a word. I didn't even read the word, Bible. I did nothing but observe what was around me. And um, probably tens of thousands of people, maybe more. What did I learn? First, I learned that ideology and dogma becomes really insignificant amidst a culture like that. And uh, under the weight of a place like New York City, if you're willing to let your prejudices fall, they can fall. I stepped out in the early morning sidewalk full of opinions about what God and Jesus are about to do in this life and world, and I exited that same sidewalk at dusk with a, a worldview that uh, shrunk my pet opinions down considerably, humbly. Um, a much bigger place God has created for this world. Not smaller, bigger. It's really, really easy to stay kind of hoveled up in your own world, your own microcosm, your own thinking of what you believe and what you uh, see. And it's really easy to get trapped in that and uh, all you got to do is go rub shoulders on the street with thousands of smelly, different type of every walk people and uh, look out for their children who are running out toward the street and the religious delusions start to crumble again if you let them. Does God truly love us all? He does. So much he sent his only begotten son to save us. Do all really and actually have a chance to know him the way we say they have to know him before they die? Go walk the streets of New York City before you answer that. Observe the people who are wearing burkas and face coverings and yarmulkes and peace malas and titchels and temple garments in 90 degree heat and tell me that they are all errant going to hell forever because they were born in that faith and they were taught to ardently seek God through that means and they are living it right before your eyes. So I am not a universalist at all. To me, they are all groping for Jesus. They just don't all know it yet. And they will know it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but he is the only way. Uh, but go to New York City if you think you have all the answers in your uh, myopic studies of the morning and you're walking about with, uh, you know, your crosses tattooed on your hands and things. So another thing I learned has to do with one of my favorite topics when it comes to talking about religion, and that's culture. In small town USA, you know, if it's an agricultural town, the culture kind of uh, drowns everything that's there. So your food is Western if it's an agrarian, agrestic state. If, you know, cowboy boots and cowboy hats and cowboy shirts, that kind of dominates the small town culture. And uh, if you don't conform to that, you typically are cast out. And typically people who don't conform to small town culture get cast out to places like New York City because there's nowhere else for them to go. Larger towns tend to have more subcultures because they're larger. So for instance, in Huntington Beach or Salt Lake City, there's a lot of subcultures that are allowed to thrive and exist, uh, but they too are limited. 
to a lot of the factors that are external. Uh, so like Huntington Beach has a surf culture, it has a skate culture, it has a drug culture that kind of gets involved to all of that. It has a beach culture that has a lot of subcultures all of its own. Surfers, skimboarders, boogie boarders, longboarders, body surfers, swimmers, uh, all that. And then there's a hot ride culture, a music culture, a sports culture. And then in Huntington, there's a general, I'm tattooed, MMA fighter, porn star girlfriend culture. That, that all exists in Huntington and all those little subcultures thriving, all right? If you don't fit in, even in a large city like that, you gotta go somewhere else. For any number of reasons, New York City has transcended establishing a general culture and, or even a, 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 an amalgamation of subcultures. They cannot be defined in that place. I discovered that watching. There are so many cultures in that city that no one will ever have the chance to dominate another one. You could say, well, the Orthodox Jews, they would love to, they're not gonna. Uh, you could say the unorthodox Jews, you could say the Muslims, you could say the Indians, you could say the blacks, you could say the Chinese, you could say the Italians. They all have some little part of the city that they kind of have taken over and owned, but at large, everybody has to walk down from 125th all the way down to uh, you know, Fifth Avenue, everybody has to walk on the same sidewalks and every culture is represented. I mean, homeless women, healthy women, well-dressed women, toothless women, singing people, begging people, people without limbs, all colors, angry people, theatrical people. So there are people from every country on earth that are coming into that place that are sharing the same sidewalk. There's locals from every country on earth. There are people wearing clothes from every country on earth, eating foods from every country on earth. There are mosques, there are temples, there are churches, there are synagogues next to drugstores and, and drugs on the street and bodegas and wax museums. It's an amalgamation of culture, but not one of them dominates. So while I'm sure the Mormons and the Orthodox Jews or the Muslims or the evangelicals would love to get that city to fit under its stamp or culture, it won't ever happen. They can't. That's the beautiful thing about that city is they, are, they, are in, they cannot dominate. Why? It's a fantastic scene of people that were all created by God. We forget that when we get myopic in our views and our faiths. We forget that he created them and they are getting along rather remarkably in very close stacked upon stacked culture. The people are forced to accept and deal with all of these types and their own personal beliefs, they have little to do with, with engagement. They just accept this is the fact. Nobody seems to care. And to me, it's a perfect picture of what Christianity could be if men would strip away trying to control it. I believe New York City is a perfect picture of what Christianity could be. What's truly amazing about the number and variety of cultures thriving in the city is their presence of all those cultures prevents a single dominant culture from coming in and dominating them. It's not homogeny that keeps it strong, it's diversity that keeps it strong. You know, okay, so there's two ways that you can approach that subject. 
You can, take a, you can take a society or a group or a movement and you can say, we need to be homogenous so that we can have power. The Third Reich, Jonestown, Mormonism, in early Mormonism in Utah, homogenous. Still homogenous. White shirt, tie, same haircuts, look, homogenous. The McDonald's Corporation, we will do this all the same way to, to maintain order and control. Or New York shows us that diversity, and I know that's such an old trite word today, but it's the diversity of people and cultures who God has made diverse that keeps from one certain group coming and taking over. Did you ever think about that? That you don't need to run a religion and you don't need to run a government with homogenous leanings, that you can have one actually thrive with people being free to be cowboys or gays or amputees or whatever, and yet all have a common goal of Christ. That is a great picture. God has made humankind so diverse. There is not a same two people on the face of this earth. Fingerprints, I'm not even sure if identical twins. Eyes, when they do eye scans, there's not two people the same on this entire earth ever, ever. God has done that. We are different in our height, our weight, our body shape. We are different in our genders. We're different in our... We are different, and God has done that. Men take what God has done and said, get over here in this camp and be the same because we want to control. You see the difference and why I'm fighting for this when we talk about it? I think uh, Christianity can learn a lot from New York City. That's part of my stream of consciousness tonight. And with that, I am going to go over to our board of direction. Barely made it. Just kidding. We are uh, still pitching subjective relationships of faith over objective religious uh, institutions of brick and mortar. Presently, I interpret this to mean uh, that I think we should accept anybody who tells us that Jesus is their Lord and Savior and accept them as our brother and sister, no matter how they've chosen to express that or follow that or do that. Of course, I have differences, many differences of opinions with people who say he's Lord and Savior and he's this. Uh, we can talk about all those things, but I'm going to, in the subjective thing, choose to love and let people subjectively choose how they will worship and what they will do. Uh, it's not up to us. It's up to God who's going to tell if Jesus really was the Lord and Savior. We share truth, but we've got to do it in love. This being said, I have people who ask me, well, if you could change uh, the Christian faith, what would you change? And so I want to run through this list really quickly and just explain it to you. This is what I would do. Now, I, I put it as, it has long been taught, and I have these, and then I say, but I would teach, and I add this, but from the Bible, by the way. It has long been taught, but I would teach it this way. So, I would, I would never say you have to accept this, but this is what I would do if I had the power to change Christianity ubiquitously worldwide. This is how I would teach it. So it has long been taught that God and his purposes, that he knows all things, he's sovereign, he's all-powerful, he gets his way, and uh, he's going to punish people forever for either making choices that they had to make because he sovereignly decided they would make them, or for making choices that they would make due to nurture and nature 
Uh, I would teach that God is love, He is just, He is good, and His desire is none. I would start off with this with children. If I had a hundred children come here and say, we want to learn about Christianity and Jesus, I would teach them, first of all, let's start with God. He desires none will be lost. That's His desire. That's biblical, and it can show up from the Greek. That is His desire without question, that none would be lost. Instead, by his foreknowledge of our free will, he will victoriously reconcile all to himself. I would start teaching this. Now, he will reconcile some to him as creatures that he created. He will reconcile others to him as children whom he uh, have accepted him by faith. And he will reconcile others to him as sons and daughters who will be joint heirs with Christ, according to Scripture. Those are three categories that we have there in Scripture. And I believe creatures, children, and sons and daughters. And there is a difference between children and sons and daughters in Scripture. It has been taught about God and his makeup that God is three separate, co-eternal, uncreated persons. All right? That make a, a God called the Trinity. Uh, I would teach, right or wrong, I would teach that there is one eternal God and he manifests himself in spirit and in flesh. In spirit as the Holy Spirit, in flesh as Jesus. God in the flesh. That's how I would teach it. That's how, just to make it simple, that's the way I would go. Uh, Christians have long taught that the purpose of life is, uh, I don't know. I don't know what Christians say the purpose of life is. I've heard to glorify God. I've heard to be saved. I've heard to do this. I've heard of so many different answers. I don't know the standard Christian response. To discover God, I don't know. But I would teach that the purpose of love is to love. To learn to love. God is love. God is love. We were made in His image. We live in a fallen world. And our lives are a constant choice of whether to love as He loves, made in His image, or not. I think everything we go through in this life is to learn to love. Everything. And so when someone says, well, what's the what, what, what are we here for? Why are we going through this? To learn to love. How? As God loved. Agape love. Not the eros, not the philos, not the story gate. All those are normal types of human love. God's love is different. I'm not sure we can even possess it. We can tap into it. We can learn to understand it. But I think that that is the purpose of life for us to learn to love. And when we die, I think that will be what our life is based on. How did you love? And you're only going to be able to really love, make a long story short, through Christ. And that's another story. It has long been taught that Jesus is coming back to the earth in the future to wipe out the enemies and to save the save, rapture them up. I believe that happened. I believe that is a true statement that he was said he was going to do that. And I believe it happened in 70 AD. And uh, as promised, that that age ended then. He came back. He saved the saints, which the scriptures are all writing, encouraging them to hang on. He's coming. And Jerusalem was destroyed. I believe that uh, Christianity has taught that the contents of the Bible are still happening and applicable to us today. I would teach that all the contents of the book have occurred as promised, that Jesus has had victory over everything uh, that he came to do, that God is now over all through him, and uh, the world has been reconciled totally to him uh, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and that seekers will find him. They will become children by faith, by grace, and they will become sons and daughters by uh, grace and by faith, by loving. I believe that is part of why we're here. Uh, I, it has been taught that we are waiting on a resurrection where 
If our grandpa died yesterday, he's going to be buried in the cemetery. And then, and then whenever the resurrection is, he is going to come forth from that grave in a physical body out of the dirt. And it's going to be a new body. And, but, you know, same thing. And I believe that I would teach that the resurrection is spiritual. And I believe that when a person accepts Christ, this, might, this is normative among many theologians. This is not unique to me. But that when a person receives Christ... They are born again, and the spirit that is in them is their resurrection. That when they live their life as a Christian on this earth, that spirit learns to love and walk by faith, become more like Christ by the spirit. And when you die, that resurrected spirit goes to God, and that's what you have for eternity. What you spiritually left this material earth with, your spiritual form in whatever diminutive or whatever grand state it's in. Therefore, we do reap what we sow. But that's how I would teach the resurrection. Uh, and then uh, it has been taught that we are waiting to enter God's kingdom after this life. I would teach that we enter his kingdom the minute we are born again. And we are part of his kingdom here on earth. And we'll be part of his kingdom after this earth. And that does not change. There's no shocking, wow, you go from being with God here to being with God there, but in a much more literal spiritual sense. And finally, uh, religious duties. It has long been taught that there are still material religious duties that every person needs to do that in order to be right with God in this life. And I would uh, teach that everything, everything, everything is spiritually based and that any material duty pushed by religions are, are of this world, they're of this place, and everything must be done freely from the heart by the Spirit to have merit in the world to come. I accept how things are now completely, and I realize all those things I just said, some of them are really fringy, some of them are probably not true. That's how I see it. Uh, you may see many of them or all of them differently, but can we move forward and, and try to not progress because the gospel is the gospel, the good news is the good news, but try to let go of some of our flesh and our religiousness to make Christianity more reasonable, and I have to use this word, more sustainable for the next couple hundred years. Because the rate we're going, I don't see it as being very sustainable. I see it as becoming kind of archaic to people, and it's not. It's not archaic. It is a beautiful, full faith. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. And while the operators are clearing any calls we might have, let's take a look at this. Will someone kill that fly? Daylene, get up here. You're the fly catcher. I got a text today. Uh, it was from my sister Kay Brown. I'm going to say her name. I don't think she'll mind. She's written a, a, a great book about Mormonism and Christianity. Uh, she and her husband are great uh, believers down in Utah Valley. They're in the fire of Mormonism. And she writes, another Mormon tries to jump into the presidential race, exclamation point. Independent party McMullen is a devout Mormon, exclamation point. This is what we all what, this is what we all believe is why Mormons keep fighting for the White House, 
colon, Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon religion, prophesied that the U.S. Constitution will be hanging by a thread and the elders of the Mormon religion will save it, end quote. Mormons also believe, as the Muslims do with Islam, that they are to take over the world by converting everyone to Mormonism. All this is true. What she's saying is absolutely true historically. It's true still in the, you know, the high priests and the Relief Society meetings. This, this verbiage is still going on. They might deny it publicly, but it's still there. But the truth is, by getting a Latter-day Saint into the White House, it would only promote Mormonism and save the dying religion who worship another Jesus, the brother of Satan, promote polygamy, subjugation of women and children, believe that they are on their way to becoming gods themselves, etc. Witnesses who have seen it and or spoken to those who know say what the LDS Washington Temple has, that the LDS Washington Temple has a complete replica of the White House Oval Office. Okay, I don't know about the truth of that, but it would be interesting to see if we could verify that. It is said to be situated inside the dome on top. Wow. Pilots have reported a field of interference when they fly over it. If any Mormon can get on a ticket to be a shoe-in for Romney to get elected as vice, then later as president, this would ensure a Masonic Mormon occult movement across the world could continue. There's a scripture in the Bible that says that if an enemy is at the door, we as believers... Uh, do not, and we as believers do not sound the alarm to protect others. We are guilty of their blood. As Christians and former Mormons who especially see the danger, we must warn others and we are to get involved in politics as long as we realize that ultimately our King and Lord Jesus Christ is ultimately in control. We can pray His will to be done and then do His will to lead others to Him and to protect their freedom to do so. God bless. Uh, someone responded, well said, Kay. Uh, Kay and I don't, probably don't see eye to eye when it comes to Christianity and politics, but I respect her right to uh, voice this opinion, and it's shared by many people, and uh, I definitely concur with her when it comes to a Mormon president. We did this when we were on the air uh, here live in, in the state of Utah when Romney ran, got into all sorts of trouble, and in fact, the leading evangelical pastor of the state uh, he couldn't wait to get me out of here because uh, going against Romney. He was on Romney's secret board. He would fly to Washington, D.C., an evangelical, and was all pro, 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 not realizing or not even admitting what it would do for that faith. Now, listen, again, we're talking about the institution. The individuals I have a heart for because they're trapped in something that I was trapped in and people I still love are trapped in. And like Paul says in Romans 10, they mean well, they seek to serve God, but they don't understand his righteousness. And they go about to establish their own righteousness. So I have a heart for them. But the institution I have no, no respect for. And those who are in power, no respect. And it's not for political, it's not because of political allegiances that I make this. It's not because uh, Romney or anybody else is Republican. Uh, none of that. It's simply because Mormonism will win. That's how they think. And unless you've been a Mormon, you don't understand that. If you're a Christian and you support a Latter-day, an active Latter-day Saint as a uh, uh, leader in government, you're a fool. It's just plain and simple. And I'm not political at all, but I think you're a fool. Because all you're going to do is give clout to a worldwide movement, uh, like Kay mentioned. All right, let's go to Charlie in West Valley City, Utah. Charlie, you're on Heart of the Matter. John. I'm doing well. How are you? Except for this uh, god awful fly. <laughs> He's sent from Satan. 
<laughs> yeah, he's been bugging you for quite a while. I've noticed that. He is, and he's got a smile on his face. Just <laughs> well, maybe he's a more fly. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad you just kind of opened up here tonight, John. It was good to hear that. Uh, uh, I I just was sitting here listening to you and thinking, you know, when I come to the faith, I uh, I didn't know one word out of the Bible. Huh. Um, I just asked the Lord, uh, you know, I was in a distressed place and asked God if he was real, if he'd come into my life. And uh, until I read John 3, 3, you know, one must be born again, did I really understand what had happened to me at huh. that time. And then, of course, as time goes on, as truth seekers, I had to get indoctrinated. Oh, boy. And here I am standing here as a preterist wondering, and all my fellow uh, um, um, brothers and sisters who are Baptists um, can't understand why I would ever become a preterist, but yeah. sometimes I wonder the same thing. <laughs> but, it, do, it doesn't really uh, add to your popularity among the brethren, does it? No, it doesn't, <laughs> but it's realism, and, and um, you know, the futurists, I just, I went down all every single path I could go down and I ran into so many dead ends and when I found, you know, when you had uh, uh, Preston on your show, uh, that was a change of direction for me. Oh boy. Awesome. But anyway, um, what I wanted to say is what I had to say was, you know, you bring up Chuck Smith every now and then. <laughs> and I was just thinking, I wonder what Chuck is Chuck could say if he was sitting here listening to, to Sean right now, if he'd pull him by the ear and say, Sean, we need to have a talk. Yeah, he probably would. You know, he would he? You know he passed away. I do. Yeah. I do, and God bless his heart, because he's a good man. But. And you know uh, something? That's part of what's opened me up to this more liberal view, is I did, uh, I was able to see Chuck at work and sit with him and talk with him, pray with him, do different things uh -huh. on occasion and not that often, but on occasion, and he's the real deal. I mean, he is the yeah. real deal. He's the most right. salt-of-the-earth Christian. Uh, I've ever, one of the most salt-of-the-earth Christians I've ever met, truly. But I absolutely disagree with him on eschatology. And I, yeah, and, and I know what you're saying right. here. Yeah. I, I agree. I know. I understand it. It's just like I have some really good brothers right now that are going through Dallas Seminary. Oh. And I tell them, I tell them, you're, you know the Bible, you understand God's Word, you, you have a, a, the Spirit leads you. I'm just, so now you're going to go get indoctrinated with their system, and of course, if you ever know anything about Dallas Seminary, uh, what they think teach on Revelation and all those books, uh, you know, I just say, why do you need to go get indoctrinated to become a pastor to lead, your, lead the flock? I know. And they all say, well, it's required. It's required of us. And I, I don't understand that. But I stand here as a truth seeker, and I, and I, I can't condemn them. Yeah. I bless them. I mean, uh, and they, they say the same, well, you listen to Sean. <laughs> I say, well, <laughs> well, of course I do. I yeah. said, the problem is when, you know, you listen to Sean, everybody says, I, you know, I've been with you for ever since you started, but. I said, 
you only listen for a few minutes and then you say, oh, heretic, turn them off and that's it. You don't want to, you don't want to listen any further because you're afraid. They get afraid and I don't understand that. Yeah. I just don't understand that. But. You're, you're a seeker and you know, it's not because you listen to me that you're a seeker. I understand seekers that would turn me off, but treat, seekers find, you will find. And Jesus yeah. teaches that principle and I, I love what we do in ministry because I get to talk with guys like you. <laughs> right. Well, hey, Sean, I'll let you go. Thanks, really my appreciate brother. You and, love you, and love you, brother. Bye-bye. Love you, too. God bless. Bye. We're going to Ryan in Virginia. Ryan, you're in Heart of the Matter. Sean, how are you? This is Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. You remember I called you right now, I think, every week. Oh, now it's every week. Oh, I do remember you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. Hey, Sean, I would not take much time. I have just two questions. Uh, one question is uh, like, um, I know the race and the priesthood and the racism in the church, but okay, if the church LDS says, like, okay, we don't practice the racist doctrine, nothing at all, then how come they still have those racist teachings and doctrines in the DMC, in the BOM, and part of Great Christ? Why they don't change that then? You, uh, you bring up a, a fascinating point of Mormonism, Ryan, and it's this. They will publicly denounce, they will publicly change policy, they will publicly say this is not us, they will do everything, but they will not go into scripture and change what is written because it becomes very convenient for them to say that was a policy change that we did back then, but it was not a doctrinal, eternal doctrinal change. They really can't change eternal doctrines because their, their theology is once a doctrine is established as true, it is known to be eternal and it cannot change. That's why they don't change that stuff in their scripture. Okay, so they're gonna change the scripture, that's, even if they get any revelation or whatever. Doesn't matter. Gonna, They've never matter. changed it. They've added an addendum. But they've never changed, like Doctrine and Covenants 132, which talks about plural marriage, has not been yes. changed or altered at all. Okay. So, uh, another question, Sean. Then what is the difference between policy and doctrine? Doctrine means whatever is into the scriptures, and policy means uh, uh, they might uh, change or shift something a little bit here and there? Yep. Policy is a shift, policy is a change, there's policies all over the place and they can move those around, you know, like silly putty, but, but, uh, uh, <laughs> not that that stuff's that easy to move, but, uh, but doctrine in scripture, they leave in there. Okay, so it's not going to change? No. Okay, no. and one other question. In, the, in my Facebook page, like I'm still technical in LDS, I, I think I'm getting out of it as soon as possible. So praise to God. Uh, praise to God. Things, praise to God. Okay, thank you, Sean. And thank you. You helped me a lot, you guys. Um, I'm going to be very honest with you guys. So one thing, Sean. In the Facebook page, I always just like uh, add, okay, we do as millions or zillions of ordinances inside the temple. What do they mean by that? What is the millions of ordinances they do inside the temple? I mean, how many ordinances are done inside the temple? I mean, I went to the temple in the D.C. just only once. Uh, I did the baptism for the dead, that's it. But I don't have any temple recommend, and I don't need to, as I'm not interested at all. So, how many ordinances are done inside the temple? Because every time they send us the ad, like, 
millions of ordinances are done inside the temple. Be ready to go to the temple. Be temple worthy. Then there's a choir, I think, by the name. I love to see the temple for the kids. How many ordinances are done inside the temple? That's the question then. Well, what what the ordinances, uh, what they are, are, I mean, we're talking about the keep the ordinances of the temple. There's the endowment, there's the sealing, there's the washing and anointing, there's the baptism for the dead, but that's, not, that's an ordinance for the dead. But here's the thing. Within each of those, promises are made. So if you got your endowment, we'll talk about the ordinance of the endowment. If, Ryan, you went and did the endowment, you would make four specific promises in the temple based on threat of loss of life that you will keep. And that's just with the endowment alone. And they have to do with uh, everything from being sexually uh, faithful to your spouse to giving everything you will make or have made to the building up of the Mormon church. Those are covenants you make in the ordinance of the endowment. And so celestial marriage and Washington anointing all have similar covenants and promises associated with them. Okay. So the thousands and millions of things inside the temple goes on actually. Those are what? I mean, zillions and millions of things goes on inside the temple. Yeah. Like rituals or whatever you want to say. Yeah. Those are legit. Okay. And they never talk about that publicly to any people. Even in the temple preparation class, one of my friends, uh, he was a recent convert like me. He's doing the temple prep class, okay? So I was just talking with him in the temple preparation class. They never say anything about temple garment, temple and no. what are you going to see or something. They always talk about, okay, all the basic things, like a law of tithing, law of chastity, law of all those things. And it, my friend was asking the teacher one day, tell me what I'm going to know. Tell me what I'm going to do inside the temple. He just said, no, don't worry, you will know whenever you go there. Yeah, they keep it, they keep it really... Um, stealthy and uh, clandestine because one, they think it's really sacred. Two, it's a way to keep it all inside the temple. And if you're part of that club and you get in there, then you can openly talk about it. And there's like this group mentality of belonging to that special group. And then when you come out, you kind of wink, wink. They're not ready yet. You know, there's kind of that, that thing that's going on, but they rarely will ever tell you specifically about what's actually happening there. Ryan, I got to take a call from New York, my brother. All right, thank you. Take care. Thanks for watching. Bye bye. Okay, good. Bye bye. All right, let's go to Matthew in New York. Matthew, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, Sean. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Okay, so I've got uh, kind of a two part question. Yeah. So I, I want to know how much do you know about the community of Christ, or formerly known as Reorganized Church? I know a little bit about their old days uh, with Emma, etc., but I don't know that much modern. I know that they've become more Christian-like. They still have the Book of Mormon, I think, but not, not much. They, women are allowed to have their priesthood, things like that. Okay. Yes, exactly. It seems like they're trying to become much more ecumenical. They've, they've taken a, a really uh, critical look at the history of the church, and they've kind of recognized a lot of the things that we've recognized. You know, they initially rejected polygamy, and um, they've always had uh, blacks that were admitted to the priesthood and also women to the priesthood now. So they've kind of denounced a lot of these doctrines that have separated the LDS Church from mainstream Christianity. Yeah. And I was curious, um, 
if the LDS Church were to kind of follow suit, what types of things would you consider, in your opinion, things that they would need to denounce or change in order to be considered a Christian church? Wow, it's, uh, it's a good question because I could give you a, a real laundry list, Matthew, or I could sort of truncate it down to the most important thing. And the most important thing that I can think of uh, for the Mormons to admit uh, would probably deal with the ontology of God, his makeup, relative to there being one God and him giving his only begotten son no other sons and daughters of God, and that it is by grace we are saved. It would probably be, if they would agree that God loved us so much, he sent us his son, his son was the word made flesh, who gave his life to save us, and we are saved. That means exalted in the highest degree of heaven by faith alone on his son. Uh, I think that would, I wouldn't care if they did all the other weird stuff, because other groups do weird stuff. So to me, I would, I would like to see the temple go. I think it's really odd. And I don't see how the temple would exist if they admitted that salvation, meaning exaltation, is by grace through faith, period. I don't see how the temple would exist. But those would be the first main things to me. I wouldn't even care about the Book of Mormon remaining. I think the Doctrine, Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price would have to go out the window once they admitted those first three things. God is eternal. He is uncreated. There is one God. He loved us so much. He sent his son who lived a perfect life, died on a cross, get, shed blood for us. And it is by faith upon him that we are uh, reconciled to God. That, I think, would be the three things. Great. Thank you, Sean. Thank you so much, Matthew. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. Uh, we will get to Mark in Canada. Mark, I'm sorry. I think we talked last week, but we'll get to you next week. Join us next week as we continue on with talking about creation. We're going to talk about the day controversy. Was it seven actual 24-hour periods? Does a day mean a thousand years? What does a day mean in the Christian LDS debate? And then we'll move on through the fall, Adam and Eve, everything like that here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake the storms are rising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the 